Change is a hard thing, isn't it? We have trouble with change because change knocks us off balance. In our family right now, we are preparing for a lot of change. We have number two on the way. So we're preparing to change from a double team to a man-on-man. Just glad I'm not at a zone coverage just yet. We're just moved out of our house that we've lived in as long as Gracie has been alive and now are preparing to live with my parents for a few months. Pray for them and us. Maybe we'll all still be in the church together at the end. We're at the same time building a new house, preparing for a change in where we're going to, our roots will be, and a change in house payment and all that kind of stuff. And it's scary. It's scary because there's a lot of unknowns there. There's a lot of unknowns in any pregnancy, in any new child. There's a lot of unknowns as far as health, and we don't know what it's like to raise two children. We struggle with one, so two. Scary building a new house and going to a new neighborhood and having a bigger house payment and doing all that kind of stuff. It's scary because it knocks you off balance, and this is what change does, isn't it? But I think even though not all change is good, change itself is a, is a necessary thing. We need to be knocked off balance, don't we? There needs to be moments in our lives in which we are, are knocked off center or knocked off balance so that we don't just plod through life with our heads down, taking one step and another step and another step without any awareness of what's going on. We don't need to become so complacent in our lives that we lose touch with what life even is and what the purpose of this life is. And I think change serves to help knock us off balance so that we can have a a fresh sensitivity to all of those things. But Jesus, when he came, changed everything. One of the things that we see about Jesus' ministry, and we have seen in the past few weeks, is that the religious leaders are becoming increasingly uncomfortable. And the reason is, is that Jesus has knocked them off center. Jesus has come and he's flipped the world upside down. He's changing everything. For the better, but they can't see it. And all of us that are in Christ, all of us that have experienced salvation in Jesus, we know that he came into us and what happened? He knocked us off balance, right? He changed us. He transformed us. He made us something new. He made us someone new. This is what Jesus does. This morning, Jesus is going to explain that to the religious leaders of the day that are so uncomfortable with him. So if you would stand with me. As we read God's word together, we're going to be again in Matthew chapter 9. We will read verses 14 through 17. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. God's word says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So, disciples of John the Baptist approach Jesus. And they approach Jesus with a question very similar to the question that the Pharisees had just asked the disciples of Jesus. Remember, the disciples of Jesus had just, had just, the Pharisees had just asked the disciples of Jesus, why is it that your teacher dines with sinners? Why is it that your teacher is reclined at the table with prostitutes and tax collectors? Well, this time, the disciples of John the Baptist come, and instead of going to the disciples, to their credit, they go directly to Jesus. And they say, Jesus? Again, we're, we're looking at what you're claiming, we're looking at what you're teaching, and we're seeing inconsistency. Your disciples don't fast. Now, in Jesus' day, it was very common for those that were particularly godly, those that were particularly religious, would fast twice a week. They would fast every Monday and every Thursday. And this was for those that were particularly pious, those that were to be set aside like the disciples of John and like the Pharisees of the day. And so they look at Jesus, and Jesus has been teaching a very intense picture of discipleship. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount, and this is not just taught in the Sermon on the Mount, very likely taught throughout Jesus' ministry. And so word is getting around on what Jesus is saying. And so the disciples of John look at Jesus and they say, we see inconsistency. We are doing the things of godliness. We are doing the righteous works. We are fasting twice a week. We are setting ourselves aside. And while we are fasting, your disciples are feasting. We are fasting for holiness and your disciples are feasting with prostitutes. How does that make sense? And so what you can see what the disciples of John are doing is they're criticizing Jesus' inner circle. They're criticizing Jesus' disciples for not being godly enough, for not being devoted enough, to not, for not being committed enough to the law of God and to the word of God and to godliness and righteousness. Now that's what we do, isn't it? What are they doing? Comparing themselves, aren't they? They're doing comparisons. And it's interesting who they lump themselves in with. They say, it's us and the Pharisees. Now, if you'll remember Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, John the Baptist, who is their leader, looks at the Pharisees and says, you brood of vipers. And yet somehow, his disciples feel comfortable grouping themselves with the Pharisees as though the Pharisees were an acceptable standard. They are comparing themselves to the Pharisees and themselves and the Pharisees to the disciples of Jesus. They're looking and saying, look, we are godly, the Pharisees are godly, your disciples, we're not sure about them. They don't, they don't seem godly at all. But they had missed it. They had missed it. In Matthew 5, 20, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that what he requires is a godliness that is greater than that of the Pharisees. That Jesus is looking for and God is expecting a righteousness that transcends the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now on the outside, the Pharisees were impressive. 
On the outside, the Pharisees were very impressive. They, they did religious things in a religious way. They were, they were sound in their ritual. They held tightly to the fundamentals of the faith and the fundamentals of Scripture. They, they knew the Word of God. They knew the prophecies of God. They knew especially the law of God. They sought to apply it in their lives. And so if you were to look at the disciples of John, if you were to look at the Pharisees, they were impressive. But Jesus says, I expect something more than that. I'm looking for a righteousness that transcends all of that. See, the, the Pharisees and the disciples of John would have been very impressive compared to other men. But very unimpressive when compared to Jesus. Their hearts were cold. Their, their heads were filled with truth and filled with knowledge, but their hearts were cold. On the outside, they were whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, they were filled with dead bones. But not Jesus. Jesus obeyed the Father because he loved the Father. Jesus sought to honor the Father because his heart was for the Father. So there was obedience, there was adherence to the law, but it was at the same time in his heart. It was in the, the spirit of what he did. It was the spirit and truth coming together, like he tells the Samaritan woman. The fastest way for any of us to be a Pharisee is to compare our godliness to the godliness of others. The fastest way for any of us to be a Pharisee it's to measure our godliness by comparing ourselves to other people. But we do this all the time, don't we? We say, you know, could I be more faithful to church? Yeah. But I'm more faithful than that guy, so I must be all right. Could I read my Bible more? Well, yeah. But I know the scriptures better than her, at least. What's the problem with all of this? What's the problem of all the comparisons? The comparisons are lowering the standard. The standard is not your neighbor. The standard is not the unfaithful guy at work. The standard is not even the godliest person in our church. The standard is Jesus. We've got to stop comparing ourselves to one another and stop comparing ourselves to our Sunday school teachers and stop justifying our sin by comparing ourselves to the sinful neighbors that we have and instead begin comparing ourselves with Jesus. Because he expects a righteousness greater than all of that. Now it's a daunting thing to compare yourself to Jesus, isn't it? It's a daunting thing. Anytime you put your life beside that of Jesus, immediately you say exactly what Isaiah said in chapter 6 when he said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. When we look at, at Jesus and we think that is our comparison and that is our standard, it is immediately easy for us to begin to despair. It's easy for us to begin to kind of freak out and know we're never going to measure up. But we shouldn't despair. We shouldn't despair. Look at what Jesus said last week. Look back with me to chapter 9, verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This morning you're saying, I compare myself to Jesus and immediately I say, woe is me. Immediately I understand how, how far short I'm falling. Immediately I know I will, that's a standard that is unattainable for me. 
And what would Jesus say to us? You're exactly where you need to be. You're exactly the kind of person that Jesus came for. You're the, exactly the kind of man or woman that Jesus came to call. Jesus did not come to call the righteous Pharisees. He came to call the sinners. Jesus did not come for the well. He came for the sick. You see, an awareness of your sin is a gift from God. An awareness of your sin is a gift from God. We just prayed for the Holy Spirit to come and to, to fill this place and to allow us to sense his presence. And what are we inviting him to do? John tells us, that the, or Jesus tells us in John, that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of her sin. An awareness of your sin is a gift from God that should not leave us despairing. Why? We can't enjoy grace until we really understand how badly we need it. We can't enjoy grace until we really understand how badly we need it. Imagine with me for a second that you're, you're walking through some city somewhere and you're just maybe on the wrong side of town and somebody shoots at you. And a man jumps in front of the bullet and it kills him. But you are completely unaware. You didn't hear the gunshot. It's maybe a noisy city. And you didn't see the man take the bullet. And so you just keep on walking, going about your day, having no idea what has just happened to you or for you. Can you really show him appreciation? Can you really show him honor? Can you show him indebtedness? Can you appreciate a new joy for life that was almost robbed from you? No. You're unaware. But imagine if you're walking through that city and someone shoots at you and instead you watch a man dive in front of you and take the bullet for you. It hits him in the leg and he has to have his, his leg amputated. How indebted would you feel to him? How, how, how much would you seek to honor him? How much would you seek to serve him? How much would you seek to, to bring his name to all the newspapers and to, all the, and to tell everybody, this man saved my life. How much, fresh, how much sweeter would the joy of life be? Brothers and sisters, Jesus took the bullet for us. Jesus took the bullet for us on the cross. And we can't taste the sweetness of the cross. And we can't taste the generosity of the cross. And we can't taste the grace of the cross until we are fully aware of how wicked and sinful we are. And so we look and we compare ourselves to Jesus. And we see how far short we fall. And we say, Jesus, thank God for grace. Thank God for the cross. Thank God that you have set me free. I can enjoy its sweetness. And so this morning... Stop comparing yourself to everybody else. The disciples of John came and compared the to the Jesus' disciples to themselves, but in fact they should have compared themselves to Jesus. This morning, stop comparing yourself to one another and start comparing yourself to Jesus. And then enjoy his grace. Enjoy his grace. Every time you feel your heart despairing, remind yourself of the resurrection power that brings grace into your life. Every time you begin to think, oh, what a sinner I am, woe to me. Think, how great is the grace of Jesus. Understand this morning how big your sin is so that you can enjoy how much bigger his grace is for you. When Jesus responds to them, he responds with logic 
And he responds in a way to show them how idiotic their question was. They come to him and they say, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? We fast, the Pharisees fast, your disciples not fasting. Why is that? And Jesus looks at them and says, why in the world would they fast? Why would they fast? I'm with them. I'm with them. I'm the bridegroom. I've come to eat with them, to dine with them, to live with them. We're at a wedding. You don't, you don't fast at weddings. You feast at weddings. You dance at weddings. There's no mourning at weddings. See, in Jesus' day, and you can see this in his response when he said, why would we mourn? There's no mourning here, right? You don't mourn with the bridegroom coming. In Jesus' day and throughout the Old Testament, fasting was primarily tied to mourning. We see this in Leviticus chapter 16. That's the only time, 1629 is the only passage in the Old Testament in which the people are commanded to fast. And they are commanded to fast on the Day of Atonement so that they might mourn the severity of their sinfulness. Throughout the Old Testament, the other occasions of fasting we see, we see in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, David and his men fasting at the death of Saul and Jonathan, mourning their death. We see in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see Nehemiah weeping and fasting because of the disrepair of the walls of Jerusalem. In Esther chapter 4, we see them fasting and mourning the calamity that seemed to be approaching them, hoping that God would intercede on their behalf. And so Jesus looks at them and he says, mourning is inappropriate right now. Mourning doesn't even make sense right now. I'm here. Now, the imagery that Jesus uses is not accidental. He refers to himself as the bridegroom. Throughout the Old Testament, one of the common ways that God would refer to himself in a relationship to his people is he would be the faithful husband and they were the unfaithful bride. We see this throughout the book of Hosea especially. In Isaiah, he talks about the Messiah coming, and when he talks about the Messiah coming, he talks about a, a wedding banquet that the Messiah will be at. Jesus is making a veiled but clear claim that he is the Messiah, that he is God, and that when God is in your midst, you don't have to fast. That when you're sitting at the, the feast, when you're sitting at the wedding table of the Messiah, that's not a time of fasting, it's a time of feasting. Not a time of mourning, a time of dancing. But he says, there is a time coming. There is a time coming and I'm going to be taken away from here. I'm going to be taken away. That according to the sovereign plan of God and because of the wicked actions of men, he's going to be taken from them and nailed on to the cross. And so today is a day of feasting, but there is a day of fasting coming. There is a day of mourning that's approaching. See, they had misread the whole thing. The disciples of John had misread the whole thing. It wasn't that Jesus' disciples weren't going to fast. It's that they weren't going to fast yet. And so Jesus says, there's a day coming in which I will be taken from them, and they will, my presence will be no longer with them, and they will be fasting from my presence, and they will be longing for me to come back, and they will be mourning the sinfulness that has killed me, and they will be mourning their own sinfulness that dishonors me. When I'm taken away from them, there's a day of fasting coming. We fast because we long for the Lord, and we long for him, don't we, church? We long for Jesus. We see sick children and abused women 
and homosexual marriage, and we long for Jesus. We see calamity and AIDS and poverty and starvation, curable disease killing millions of people, and we long for the return of Jesus. We aren't sure where our next paycheck is coming from. We aren't sure that our marriage is going to hold together, and we long for Jesus. Because we live in the very time that Jesus is talking about. We live in the day of fasting. We live in the day of anticipation. We live in the day of waiting. You see, fasting, in essence, is the Christian life. The Christian life is, in essence, a fast. It is us withholding ourselves from the indulgences of the world. It's us withholding from ourselves the satisfying of all of our appetites. It is us withdrawing ourselves from the world, setting ourselves apart from the world, knowing that it just won't last very long. So we fast from the things of the world and we fast from the indulgence of the flesh because we know that eventually a feast is coming. We know that eventually the waiting and the fasting will be worth it. See, fasting is the Christian's way of demonstrating that Jesus is all that we need. Fasting is the Christian's way of demonstrating that our joy is not found in this world. And so we do without here because we know one day it's going to be better. In your life, is your life more defined by fasting or by indulgence? In your life, do you see yourself more satisfied in Jesus or more needing the things around you? But brothers and sisters, let me just tell you. We don't have to fast very long. We don't have to fast very long. The feast is coming. Just like Sunday was coming, the feast is coming. We long for Jesus. Jesus is coming back for us. We do without now, but Jesus is coming back. And we're going to sit at his table with him forever. Turn with me to John chapter 16 for a second. John chapter 16. I want us to read verses 16 through 24. Because I believe this is going to help somebody this morning. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, says this. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, Who is this that he says to us a little while? What is this that he says to us a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, underline this in your Bible, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers anguish for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. 
Jesus says, I'm going to be taken from you. In a little while, I'm going to go away. In a little while, I'm going to step out of this world and into another world, but I'm coming back. The world is going to celebrate. The demons are going to dance. The enemy is going to say that he's won, but it's going to be temporary. It's going to be temporary. You're going to weep, and you're going to lament, and you're going to deal with disease, and you're going to deal with heartache, and you're going to deal with anguish, and you're going to deal with pain, but it's temporary. I'm coming back. And when I come back, all of your anguish, all of your sorrow, all of your struggle, all of your pain is going to be transformed into joy. It's going to turn into joy. Your sorrow is going to turn into joy. He says it's like a mother giving birth. He says she labors and she labors and she labors. She goes through excruciating pain. She goes through anguish. She goes through agony. She's crying and she's sweating and she's struggling and she's scratching and she's clawing and she feels like she just might die. But then the baby comes and the doctor takes the baby and he places her in the mother's arms and as fast as that happens, in an instant, so much joy floods into her life, so much joy floods into her arms that all of the anguish and all of the pain goes away to a distant memory in an instant. That there's so much joy and there's so much pleasure and there's so much happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in this little child that all of the pain goes away in an instant. And he says, this is how it'll be for my disciples. This is how it'll be for my church. Look, the mother's pain is real. The mother's pain is severe. The mother's pain is intense. But it doesn't last. For all of you, your pain is real. Your pain is severe. And the anguish that you have and the languishing through this life and the struggling through this life and the agony that might be in your soul is all real and it's all intense and it's all severe. But brothers and sisters, it will not last. The joy of the Lord coming back will so flood into your life that in an instant all of that will be wiped out. And there will be no more pain, no more struggling, no more heartache, no more fear, no more anxiety. Only joy in an instant and forever. You will be at the table of the king. It will no longer be a time of fasting, but a time of feasting. This past uh, February, March, and April were really, really busy for me. And I went three weeks where I was really not at home at all. I had a Salt Lake City mission trip, I think at the end of March. And then there was kind of a week in between, but had meetings late every night that week. And trying to, trying to catch up from being gone the week before and catch up for the week ahead. The very next week, I went to seminary, and so <clears throat> I was away from home a lot. And I got so homesick. I was at seminary, and I was in Kentucky, and I was supposed to come home on that Friday, and I was just so, so homesick. I decided I was going to get up at like five, four or five and just come home, and just Gracie was at the babysitter, and I could be home by lunch and just kind of surprise her at the babysitter. And it's just one of those things as a parent that you'll never forget your entire life. I go in, and Megan had told her, she said, Daddy's coming home this after, or tonight, and so you, I'll come and get you, and then when, you, when we come home, we'll eat supper, and then Daddy will come home. And so I come in, and she's, of course, it's nap time, and she's the only one not asleep. Um, 
And if you know Gracie, you understand. And so I, the, the sitter says that she's going to go and get her. And I hear a little pitter-pattering, you know, down the, down the hall. And I'm excited to see her. And she's just got a big grin on her face and walking. And she, she, she makes eye contact with me. And immediately her whole countenance changes. She's two and a half. And she begins just sobbing uncontrollably. And she runs. And she jumps in my arms. And she holds me so tight. And she says, I thought you was mommy. <laughs> she said, I missed you so much. I missed you so much. And she would take me and she would hold me out like this. And then she'd pull me back in like this. And hold me out and pull me back in like this. And as far as I know, that's the first time she ever prayed. Uh, cried happy tears in her life and I thought yeah I have a little girl <laughs> but you know I think that's the picture of what it's going to be like when we when Jesus finally does come back for us there's such longing in our hearts for him there's such difficulty here without him that when he comes we're going to be so uncontrolled we're going to run and our whole countenance will change and we'll grab him and we'll hug him I missed you and we'll hold him back and we'll look at him and we'll pull him close again and hold him out and look at him and pull him close again. And I'm telling you all this for the purpose of telling you that I think what we see in Jesus' disciples in Matthew chapter 9 is a foreshadowing of what we're going to be in forever with Jesus. Jesus says this isn't a time of fasting, this is a time of dancing. This is a time of feasting. This is a time of, time of celebrating. I'm going to go away, but right now is not that way. And that is just foreshadowing the peace and the joy and the dancing and the celebrating and the feasting that we will be with him forever that we will know forever what his disciples knew in a moment forever we will know what it's like to have Jesus's grace and kindness poured out over us so you need to hear that this morning those of you that are struggling to wake up in the morning those of you that are struggling to get through your life those of you that don't know what you're going to do next this life is a fast, but a feast is coming. A feast is coming. Jesus finishes it up with two parables in verses 16 and 17. He said, no one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And I think there's two reasons that Jesus gives us this. First, he's, he's saying this in a way that shows them just the idiocy and, the, and how ludicrous the question is that they've asked him. He's saying, look, everybody knows you don't put a, an old patch on an, a new patch on an old garment. Everybody knows that you don't put new wine into old wines because everybody knows it just destroys the whole thing. How do you not know this answer? But I think there's a second la layer here that's much deeper than that. What he's saying here is that the old is passing away and there's, this is the inauguration of the new. That the old covenant is fading away and the new covenant is now being established. And in other words, I am bringing fundamental change to your understanding of God. I'm bringing fundamental change into the way you relate to God. I'm bringing fundamental change in the way that you understand what it means to be godly. See, since the time of Moses, the people of God had lived under the old covenant. That if 
they would obey the laws of God, the Lord would allow them to live in the promised land and he would prosper him. But that if they would be unfaithful to the Lord, that he would bring calamity and exile on him so that the world may know that he is God. But just like an old garment, the old covenant had a hole. It had a hole. The law was not unholy. It was given by a holy God. The problem was is that the people were unholy and they were incapable of faithfulness to it. And so the law looked at the people and it said, you keep striving, you keep aiming at the standard, and you keep falling short, and there's no hope of you ever meeting the standard. And so the law kept looking at him and said, you got to do better, and you got to do better, and you got to do better. And what Jesus is saying is, I didn't come here to be a patch. I didn't come here to be a patch. I didn't come here to add something to the law. I came here as fulfillment to the law. I came here as the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31. See, in Jeremiah 31, God said that he understood the whole in the, in the old covenant. He understood, as Hebrews 8, that it was going to become obsolete. And that what he was going to do is he was going to take a new covenant. And this time he was going to write it on the hearts of his people. The law that they could no longer, that they had never been able to meet, they will now be able to meet because it will be written on their hearts. That it will be an eternal, unconditional covenant. One that is permanent and incapable of being broken. Jesus has come to do that. Jesus has come not so that everybody else might be better, but that everyone else might be made new. So that now they could reach the standard of the old covenant. So that now Jesus would cover them, not as a patch, but as an entirely new garment of his own righteousness. It's a better way to get rid of a hole, isn't it? And so Jesus is saying, we can't hold on to the old and to the new with, both hand, with each hand. To hold, try to hold on to both of them at the same time is to bring disgrace and dishonor to them both. It would show the old covenant as being unfulfilled and the new covenant as being insufficient. But I have come as a new garment to cover it. I have come as new wine in a new wineskin that it might all be changed and it might all be transformed. Now why is it that Jesus felt it appropriate to talk about the going away of the old and the coming of the new in this setting. I think when he looked at the disciples of John and he looked at the Pharisees, he saw why ne how necessary it was for the new covenant to come. In other words, when he saw the misunderstanding, the fundamental misunderstanding of what godliness was and what faithfulness was and what righteousness was, when he looked at them and saw that, he knew why, how badly they needed him. This morning, you don't need to be better. You need to be new. You don't need to work harder and try to meet the law. You don't need to clean up yourself like we talked about last week. You don't need to be better. You need to be made new. The, disciple, the, the disciples of John and the Pharisees, they had the law of God in their books but not in their hearts. They had the word of God and they used it to build themselves up and to tear everybody else down. But Jesus came that all of us might be made new by his grace, that the law might come into our hearts, that we might worship the Lord in both spirit and in truth. He didn't come to add something else to you. He came to take away everything else and to make you new. So this morning, some of you are trying to hold on to stuff and hold on to Jesus at the same time, but you're dishonoring him. You're trying to hold on to the bitterness that you have towards your ex, and him at the same time, and you just can't do it. 
You're trying to hold on to the anger that you have towards your dad and Jesus at the same time, and you just, you're, you just can't do it. You're trying to hold on to all of your anxiety and all of your stress and Jesus at the same time, but you just can't do it because one is saying do better and one is saying let me make you new. This morning, brothers and sisters, I ask you, let go of everything else and take hold of Jesus with both hands, with everything that you've got, and let him transform you from the inside out and write the law of God on your hearts. Let him knock you off balance in the best sense of the word. That you might live a life that is faithful to God and honoring to God. That you might taste his grace. Let go of everything and take hold of Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning.